Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast brought to you by Family Vision Media. Check us out at familyvisionmedia.org and stacyontheright.com. It's my pleasure to welcome Dana Hall McCain. She is a faith and public policy columnist at AL.com, a part of Alabama Media Group. She writes about faith, culture, and politics. You can follow her on Twitter at McCain for her thoughts on those topics and more. Dana, thank you for your time today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Stacey. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you have written an op-ed that is linked in the show notes for those who are listening. Check it out at the show notes. You can just click the link and read the article. Um, the article that you've written is about the eviction moratorium, which is completely extrajudicial, unconstitutional, whatever you want to say about it. It's not something that the CDC actually has the right to do. And it has gone to the Supreme Court now twice, and both times they have said, that's not okay. Tell us about what, how this story has developed into um, this big headache for landlords. Well, you know, obviously, when our nation first started sort of spiraling into the economic consequences of the pandemic last year and, you know, the spring and the early summer of 2020, there was a great deal of concern because so many states were seeing full-scale lockdowns. I know here in my home state of Alabama, we had um, two or three months of a large number of businesses being closed and shuttered completely, cutting off a large number of Alabamians from any source of income. And um, naturally, that does lead to people falling behind on rent and falling behind on being able to afford essential things. So it was incredibly reasonable, I think, to want to offer some sort of temporary relief for tenants who were in extreme economic distress, you know, through no fault of their own, because we were all in a very unprecedented moment. Um, So the CDC, and this is where the, the train jumps the track initially, the Centers for Disease Control, which is a public health entity, issued this moratorium on evictions. And it it wasn't surgical and it wasn't nuanced. It was just a blanket moratorium saying that you cannot evict people for non-payment of rent from rental properties um, at this time. Even that issued by, you know, a federal entity that has no no, you know, jurisdiction over personal property and, and housing um, would have been more tolerable if, if they had sunset the whole thing very quickly and turned it over to Congress, let Congress pass some sort of law or let the states deal with it. But that's not what happened. Over and over again, we saw the CDC extend this policy. And then, of course, when the Biden administration took office in January, we've seen it extended again and again under their leadership. Um, So what we've had are essentially property owners who have been stripped of and deprived of their personal property and that they have people living in properties that they own and still have to carry all of the expenses and liability and insurance for, um, but they're not being compensated for it financially. So they're, they're essentially being deprived of what it is that they own. And that's, that's a constitutional violation at its core. Um, so it, it's been a problem for personal property owners and one that they began to seek relief from. Yeah. And I, I actually have encouraged this, 
on radio, um, just I've been saying, you know, we need lawsuits here because people kind of sat back and they said, well, people don't have jobs. You don't want to throw families out on the street. But then there was the unemployment insurance. So people filed for unemployment and there were a state boosts of 300 per week and then a, a federal boost of 600 per week. So there were people, two income households where the husband and wife were sitting home on unemployment and earning a hundred grand a year. So it's kind of hard to understand how you could get that kind of unemployment insurance paid to you and not be able to afford your rent. There, there was a lot of aid going out in, in the form of these increased unemployment benefits and in the stimulus checks that Americans were receiving. And so, you know, landlords, unfortunately, were just being asked to take the hit because there was nothing that required the recipients of all these funds to turn around and, and pay the back rent that they owed or the current rent that they owed. Um, and I think one of the misconceptions that, that takes place when we talk about this is the, the conception that property owners or landlords are all millionaires and billionaires who own, you know, just thousands of properties and that, you know, all tenants are economically disadvantaged. And it's a David and Goliath scenario. When the reality is, I know even in my area of the country, there are a great many small business people that are rental property owners, people who have worked very hard to accumulate one or two or three rental houses or duplexes that, you know, they've put together a little business for themselves and they depend on the cash flow of that rental income to make their business model work. And, you know, it's not unseemly or unkind or immoral to expect tenants to live up to their ethical obligations to pay the rent on time and to fulfill their contract obligation for living in that property. Again, a temporary moratorium would have been palatable, and I don't think any of us would be talking about this today if it had been something that had lasted for three to six months until people could begin to get those unemployment benefits. And if the federal government had really put together a good plan for dispersing the, what was it, $46 billion in rent assistance that Congress did appropriate, that still just has not been dispersed. Like the vast majority of it is still sitting in um, in treasuries and, and is not being dispersed to people. So if, if all of those things had been done better, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but they were not. And the result has been that, you know, rental property owners have been disenfranchised and cheated, really. And it, and it was time for them to get relief. And fortunately, the Supreme Court saw it that way and, um, and struck down the eviction moratorium. Yeah. So, Dana, when, when, can we just explore that just a little bit more? Because I don't think people really understand. We've, we've seen the top lines of this story. There's a, a CDC eviction moratorium. Mm-hmm. You know, people will read down a little bit and they're like, wow, OK, so if you're not a landlord, this doesn't apply to you. So very few people read all the way down through the story to the very end. There actually was a process. There was a form that, uh, you know, a simple form that you fill out that kind of says, I qualify for um, you know, the general requirements for eviction protection. So we don't know how many of the tenants actually fill that out. We also don't 
have a very clear picture of, and I don't know, maybe you do, of what the qualifications were because in your piece you say, okay, hold up, stop right there. The government acknowledges via the restrictions governing the disbursement of these funds that not everyone qualifies for help. So not everyone qualifies for help. If you didn't qualify for help at that point, what should have happened was your landlord should have been able to say, okay, so you don't qualify for help, so you should either pay or I'm going to, you know, begin eviction proceedings. Correct. What are the details there? Uh, what what seems to me to be the case, um, based on what I've been able to dig up in research, is that really <laughs> participating in the eviction moratorium required of the tenant only that they write out. It was really sort of a self-certification that they write down that they met the four or five requirements that, you know, they had lost income, that they, uh, that it was pandemic related, um, that, you know, that they were going to pay as much as they could when they could. It was four or five points like that. But basically, there was no oversight and no agency to verify the veracity or the truthfulness of those statements. The tenant was simply able to write that down and turn it into their landlord. And, you know, then all of a sudden they were eviction proof. Uh, But on the other side of that, like I pointed out in the column and you just referenced to qualify for the rental assistance, there was a lot more substantiation of those facts that was required. And so, you know, the government allows the, the landlord to absorb months and months and months of loss based on very little verification of information, but they don't disperse the funds without a great deal of verification. And so, again, the landlord is just caught in the middle and and gets it on both ends, and it's not fair. So it isn't fair, but there's there has to be a way. I know for me, I just, whenever I see stories like this, so we all just kind of sat back. I mean, we we really have to be hard analyzers. We have to assess in the most brutal way what got us to this place where people lost the homes that they own, that they, you know, it takes such a great amount of effort to own more than one home. I mean, obviously some people, you know, you have a family member who passes away, you're willed the home, but it's still a lot of work maintaining it, paying the property taxes, paying the the things that you are supposed to pay for, and then finding a tenant, vetting them, you know, getting them moved in, developing that renter-landlord relationship. No matter how the property comes into your hands, it is a huge undertaking of work to maintain that situation. And so we've seen people who they had to empty out their 401ks to make their mortgages on their properties because they're just waiting for something to happen. And the eviction moratorium went from we're saving people, families from being thrown on the streets during COVID-19 to landlords don't need this money. Fat cats shouldn't have to you know, be able to demand money from people who are out of work or families should never, ever be subject to eviction. Well, if that was the case, then there would be no private property ownership beyond what you can own and live in yourself because no one would ever be able to evict anyone because most people are families. Like, so most people who are renting are families. So that's exactly right. Yeah. How do we prevent this from happening again? I mean, I'm just the nightmare that people who own property, I read stories of people in the Northeast where, you know, properties are so expensive and they were told by tenants who were still working, well, I don't have to pay rent because of the eviction moratorium. And the landlord says, well, I know you're still working, so you should still pay. They would actually not pay for 12 months, then move out and sublet the property and collect rent themselves, still not paying the landlord. And the landlord is 
emptying out their 401k to pay it because they live in the property. It's like a three unit building. Um, the other two units help pay the mortgage. So they actually don't have the money not to pay. So the stories are so heartbreaking and also so malicious. Some of the renters were really, I mean, there's, there's some, some crafty, uh, duplicitous people out there. Yeah, and for every family in every situation where they truly have been disenfranchised by COVID-19, all the economic impact of that, and, and are really in a terrible situation and in danger of eviction through no fault of their own. And some of those people do exist. And I'm all for, as a Christian, doing what we can to try to accommodate and make a way for those people. But for every family like that, you have you have one and maybe two others who are leveraging the system for their own benefit, and they don't really need or deserve the help. The other thing, Stacy, that we have got to factor into this is that right now in this country, every business I pass is begging for applicants. If people are not working right now, it's because they do not want to work. There are so many businesses that are dying for staffing, having to close their doors because they can't staff their businesses. So I am very hard-pressed to understand how anyone who really wants to earn a wage and to be able to pay their rent is not able to do so at this point in time. Now, granted, I know there are exceptions to every rule. If you have some extraordinary health condition that makes you, you know, very immunocompromised, it may not be safe still for you to be in certain work environments. But that is not the vast majority of tenants that we are talking about in this scenario. The vast majority of Americans can do what I have done, which is to continue to work in public environments on a daily basis for the entire duration of this pandemic. And um, we, at some point, we're all going to have to figure out what we personally have to do to recover from this instead of asking our neighbors necessarily to tote the mail for us all the way. Yeah, this has been it's been a really interesting um development to watch. And so you quote some um, statistics from the New York Times of the roughly 2.8 million households that have applied for aid, only about 500,000 reported receiving assistance. Another 1.5 million are waiting for approvals. 700,000 were rejected. And those are just the tenants who have tried to get access to the program. Over 60% of vulnerable renters have not even applied. So um, it's a one size fits all top down methodology, an approach that has failed in so many other arenas that was just applied in blanket fashion via the CDC of all places, which has no jurisdiction over uh, property rights, landlord, or the creation of any laws, because that that is remanded by the Constitution strictly to uh, our legislative branch. And so the top-down approach has failed spectacularly. Would you would you agree with that? Because I, I you mentioned the begging for workers. There's so many different things at play here. It is actually virtually impossible for the federal government to apply something like this, a blanket moratorium on evictions without any kind of parameters as to who it applies to or what the what you have to do in order to access it. Um, we, we probably haven't seen a failure of this size ever when it comes to the CDC and them kind of reaching into an area that they don't belong in. Well, we have seen this with several different um, disbursements of federal funds, you know, that were allocated by Congress to help Americans cope with the economic impact of COVID-19, where, you know, the funds are allocated, but then actually getting them to the end point that they were intended for is just a mess. And that is the problem with 
government programs and government administrations, like you said, that are top down. We are too broad and too big a nation for that to ever work efficiently and work well. And I don't know what it's going to take for us to realize that the federal government can never administer programs like this efficiently and administer them well. And every time we try, we wind up doing this postmortem of, of how did it become so wasteful or how did it become so ineffective? And I think this is just the latest example of that. Um, you know, the state, the, the $46.5 million, billion, I'm sorry, that was allocated for this has been handed over to the states and the states are actually the ones who are supposed to be administering it. But there there should be federal guidance for that. There should be guardrails and goalposts that tell the states how they have to do it and the time frame in which they have to do it. They give them the, you know, the personnel and the resources that they need to actually administer the program and disperse the funds. But clearly none of that is happening because the funds are not making it to the landlords who desperately need the relief. Absolutely. Well, you know, the good news is we have um, deep analysis in the form of an op-ed from someone like you, because I think the article that you wrote, you cover all of the details that I've seen a little here, a little there. You took every bit of it, and you also included the Supreme Court and, and what they've said about this. And I really recommend that people read it, because in order for us to rebut other attempts at the local level or at the federal level or state level, uh, attempts of bureaucrats to basically grab power and make decisions on behalf of millions of Americans, we have to understand what happened here. And then we can say to those bureaucrats in the form of letters or public comment or speaking to them directly, um, you know what happened the last time an agency took over, uh, you know, power that was not remanded to them, uh, you know, constitutionally? Well, you had millions and millions of people who were in limbo, who never got funds, and also, you know, millions of landlords who were uh, made, basically made to pay for grownups to live in their property for free. And that can never be allowed to happen again. But knowledge is power. You have to know what happened in order to prevent it from happening again. Uh, we really appreciate your time today, Dana. Thank you for joining us. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Stacey. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we hope to talk to you again. It's Dana Hall McCain. She writes about faith, culture, and public policy for AL.com. You can follow her on Twitter at D-H-M-C-C-A-I-N, D-H McCain. Uh, so now I want to tell you about our sponsor, who this is a company that is very, very near and dear to our hearts because they provide something to us that um, other companies, they can't compare with it. And that is the opportunity to have health access, so access to your health, uh, your health care options but without supporting abortion, without supporting things that go against what God's word says. And so you can be upset by the health insurance options that are offered by the ACA, but you need a solution to that. So you can go to stacyonthewright.com or familyvisionmedia.org, click the banner ad for the Alliance for Shared Health, sign up for health sharing. ASH is that health share ministry with over 40,000 households. And as a member, you share in the financial burden of healthcare expenses, critical illness, accidents, dental, vision. You can access a virtual care provider at zero cost, pick up your prescription from the pharmacy using your share prescription card. You can order lab and imaging tests at discounts of up to 80%. So check it out. Open enrollment is now. You don't have to miss out on the chance to save 50 to 70% on your monthly premiums, and you'll be making the difference in the lives of others who share your values. Reach out to Ash today at stacyontheright.com or familyvisionmedia.org, the Alliance for Shared Health. Changing healthcare, 
changing lives. All right. That's another one for the books. Check out the link to the story that she wrote. So much information there. You can literally pull out three facts, save them in your mind, and roll them out whenever someone starts talking about the eviction moratorium. We'll talk to you next time.